Amen. I knew you'd do the hymn with the fire trials word in it. I knew it. Praise the Lord. What a team. What a team. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 4. Our sermon text for today is verses 12 through 19. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. Verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved... What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. We thank you for all of your Scripture. But we feel that this passage today is is very, very timely as we sense you desiring to prepare us for what may be lying ahead for Christians in the days to come in this very country. So give us ears to hear and hearts to embrace what you want to say to us today in the next, maybe the next two or three weeks as we camp here in this passage. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Open our eyes this morning that we may behold wonderful things from your law. That's our prayer, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. What a joy to be with you again today. What a joy to study God's word with you. In these eight verses, we have... Possibly, and I'm leaning toward probably, not wasn't really sure which uh, modifier to use there, uh, but we have, um, go ahead and say probably, the most comprehensive and concise teaching on how to handle suffering, on how to handle trials, on how to handle heartache, on how to handle uh, disappointment and despair and hard times. And persecution. In preparation for this morning, I went through the text early in the week and made a list of the proper responses to trials and suffering that Peter gives us. The title of this message is Responding Rightly to Fiery Trials. And my list contains 12 actions. 12 actions. Don't panic. Don't worry. We're only going to consider five this morning and maybe not that many. 
Maybe not that many, many uh, because as I've tweaked, as I did my Saturday tweaking, I kept adding to the first, especially the first point and, and the second point. So uh, I'm going to put up my, uh, you know, the, you, you thought this was just a baton. This is my, this is also, it has a sensor in it and it tells me when I'm losing you. So I'm, uh, I'm going to put that up there and I'll just... Uh, be tuned into that, and uh, we, we may stop after point one. We may stop after point two. We may get all five. We'll see how it goes, okay? A lot of that depends on your connection with me, okay? Uh, so um, the, we're talking about the right response to fiery trials. We've got at least 12 that we're going to look at over the next couple of weeks, maybe three weeks. going to try to get five today, but we'll see. We'll see how many we get. Okay, number one is very obvious. Very, it's right there in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised. Do not be surprised. That's our first response. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. One commentator said, uh, the fire of trial belongs to Christianity. It is the rule, not the exception. So right away, we can, we can, we can dismiss a common response to trials. We can dismiss it right away. And that response is this, why me? Why me is not a proper response. Why is this happening to me is not a biblical response to trials. The first response is don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. David Helm wrote, we should expect difficulty. The fact that we don't only indicates how little we have learned of Christianity's True center. So that quote obviously pleads the question, what is the true center of Christianity? What is the core of the Christian faith? What is genuine Christianity? What's the real thing? As Ryan shared with us, Something's being peddled in Liberia. That is not the real thing. So what is the real thing? I believe Jesus stated it when he told his disciples as he headed toward Jerusalem in his final days on earth, take up your cross and follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. The true center of Christianity is the cross. True Christianity is following Jesus, listen, not just deciding for him. Jesus never said, decide for me. Jesus never said, make a decision. No, he said, follow me. Okay? So true Christianity is following Jesus, which does begin with a decision, but also which it's a decision that God gives you. <laughs> isn't that amazing? But isn't that good? Because that means it's going to stick. That means you, you, you can't undecide, as some of the high-profile phonies have said they have done. We won't mention any names this morning. We'll let you Google that, okay? But the good news is God 
grants us repentance. He grants us faith, and we are his for good. And that results in that God-given, grace-filled decision results in us following Jesus and, listen, staying the course when suffering comes, just like Jesus did for us, right? He, 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 he considered the cross joy for the joy set before him. He endured the cross for every believer in this room and every believer on the planet and every believer that will ever live on the planet. Every believer that will one day be with him forever. So true Christianity is following Jesus and staying the course when the hardships, when the fiery trials come. Fiery trial is one word. The noun is, is, has the emphasis on fire. It's a trial that, that is so agonizing, it's, it leaves a feeling as if you've been burned. It's a, it's a very explicit, uh, descriptive word for, for hardship. Reformed theologians refer to what we're talking about here as, as a theology of the cross. Okay, if the true center of Christianity is the cross, and we believe it is, we believe the Bible teaches that, this is the theology of the cross as opposed to what the heretics in Liberia and all across, over the globe do, a, a theology of glory. A theology of the cross, biblical, versus a theology of glory. Sounds good, sounds biblical, but it's not, okay? We've talked about this before. We've discussed this, studied this before. But because we're in this section of Scripture in 1 Peter, allow me to briefly remind you the difference. The theology of glory is embraced by those who want their best life now. Those who are always craving wonder or excitement or mountaintops in their life experiences. Some examples. They can't wait to see God in His glory, so they make up power encounters, what are called power encounters. These encounters that the elite Christians have, these encounters with God that the, that the truly, really spiritual people have. While, while I'm on this point, let me, just, let me just vent with you for a minute. Let me just lay something out for you, and, and you, you can discard it or you know, take it, leave it. As my cup says here, you can, you can take it, leave it, flush it, or chunk it. Uh, but here's something that, 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 that gets me sometimes. It just... I have to bite my tongue when people say it because it's a common statement. It's a very, very common statement. And if you've been using it, please know. I love you. I'm not coming down on you, but I want you to just rethink the comment. I want you to rethink the comment. Okay, God will really bless somebody and God will really do something amazing, okay, for someone. And they'll say something, they'll say, they'll, they'll, they'll use this phrase. It was really a God thing. It was really a God thing. It was a God thing. Question. What in life is not a God thing? 
Okay? And so, okay, I hear you. Okay. Sin, he's not the author of sin. Sin is not a God thing. Okay? But what unsinful happening is not a God thing. I propose to you this morning that everything that is not sinful is a God thing. Everything. From the mountaintops to the valleys. We're going to see that. We're going to see that. From the, 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 the gloriously breathtaking, unbelievable thing that God did to, to, to rescue us or deliver us or to bless us. And the everyday, mundane changing the kids' diapers, taking the garbage out. See, that's the problem. We've compartmentalized our life into God things and then just everyday normal life, which God really isn't in. Beloved, the good news is God is in all of that. He's in everything. And that's what I want my church family to know and to see and to, to embrace God is central in every unsinful thing, okay? Because he's sovereign. He's the sovereign creator over all things, okay? And, and, and I think a lot of times some of these folks, and most of the ones I'm thinking of are not in, involved here or anything, but they, they, because I'm a pastor, they think that's really impressing me, and it's really not impressing me. It's kind of depressing me, okay, that, that they think this way, okay? So... But I always hold my tongue. I'm good. You, you, thank you for, your, for praying for me, okay? And uh, uh, so I, I don't offend anybody. But I hope I haven't offended you, okay? But I, I just encourage you to rethink that statement. If you use it a lot, just rethink that. Okay, secondly, these theology of glory people, they, they can't wait for their glorified bodies, which is promised to us, which is coming. They can't wait for it, though, so they, they name and claim help. They can't wait to be free of sin in their glorified state. So they invent legalistic schemes of works-based perfectionism, just like the Pharisees did, and divide, wind up dividing Christ's body into the lower classes who aren't following their man-centered plan and the elite who are. You've got the Really, really super Christians, and you've got just us, just everybody else, you know. So th these are the theology of glory people, which is not biblical. So basically, to sum all that up, a person who embraces the theology of glory, they, they want glory now. They want glory now in this life. Well, the theology of the cross, which is the biblical stance, recognizes that glory comes later. Glory awaits us. They understand what theologians call the already and not yet of the kingdom of God. The already and the not yet of the kingdom of God. Examples. We are already citizens of God's kingdom because of the blood of Jesus, but the kingdom of God is not yet fully consummated. That happens when Jesus comes back. We are already saved. We're as good as in heaven. We're as good as there. We're already, 
We already have been delivered from sin, death, and hell. But we are not yet glorified. We still battle sin. We still struggle with sin. We are already, hallelujah, joint heirs with Jesus. But we have not yet received our inheritance that Peter told, about, told us about in chapter 1. The, the inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, reserved in heaven for you, i.e. coming later. People of this proper mindset realize that God is revealed through suffering. And the prosperity gospel preachers don't want you to know that because that'll mess up their whole deal. That'll mess up their, their, uh, their scam, their hucksterism. God is revealed through suffering. That's what Jesus was saying to the disciples that walked with him and saying to us, take up your cross and follow me. Know that if you follow me, there's going to be suffering. There's going to be crosses. There's going to be a cross. Tim Chester writes, knowledge of God is not found through human wisdom, human powers, or human achievements. It is found in the foolishness of the cross. In his book, In the Face of God, Michael Horton wrote this several years ago. Those who seek a way of glory as the pattern for their lives whether spiritual glory or personal, national or corporate glory, will be left disillusioned in the end. Those who have, have accepted their death and their new identity in Christ are prepared for suffering, unpleasantness, disappointment, and frustration, both in Christian growth and in life in general. They are not surprised when it comes because they know the story. They have read the script and they know that their plot line is defined by the central figure in the play. And it's not them. It's Jesus. Furthermore, they know how it turns out in the end and are willing to joyfully and trustingly confess. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. And that comes at the end of the age. Glory comes not now, but then. For now, it's the cross, beloved. It's the cross, so take it up. Be ready. Don't be surprised when fiery trials come. And keep following Jesus. Let's keep following Jesus. Keep your eyes on him and keep following. So we're not surprised by trials because Jesus told us they would come. Especially trials that come because we belong to him. What did he say? John 15, 20. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, guess what? They will persecute you. They will persecute you. <clears throat> There's a second reason to not be surprised by trials. First reason, most important, Jesus said it. He prepared us for it. The Bible prepares us for it. But a second reason to not be surprised by trials is that God has always tested his people through trials. Let me give you two or three examples. Uh, first, Deuteronomy chapter 8, beginning at verse 11. 
God says, take care lest you forget the Lord, your God, by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might, watch this, humble you and test you to do you good in the end. See, God's tests are always for the purpose of doing us good. And how do they do us good? What do they do to us? What do they do to us? They make us like Jesus. They conform us into the image of Christ. Judges 3.1. Now these are the nations that the Lord left, the nations that were left in Canaan, in the promised land, the pagan nations that were left, to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. So God left some ungodly nations there for the sole purpose of testing the ones that made it to the promised land. Psalm 7, verse 9. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. And then even Jesus, who is God, God in the flesh, John chapter 6 Beginning at verse 4, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand, lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. You know, David, King David actually prayed for these tests. Do we pray for tests? David prayed for them. Do we, do, do we want our faith to be known by making it through the test? David prayed Psalm 26 to prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and mind. And remember what Peter has already said about this subject in the first, in the beginning of the letter we're studying. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that, purpose clause, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, that time when glory comes. No, not going to be glory now. It's testing. It's trials. It's hardships. It's suffering now. Interspersed with, and we all know, especially living in America, interspersed with all, all these amazing blessings that we do not deserve. You know, when Americans talk about persecution, we're still talking about it in the, in the future tense. Yeah, we, we, we think it might be coming. It, well, it might not. It might not. We, but we want to be ready. Don't we want to be ready? Don't we want to be ready? 
Don't we want want God to be able to say by us what Peter said about the receivers of this letter? The, The tested genuineness of your faith. Through the miracle of inspiration, the Holy Spirit prepared Peter for the question that was sure to come. Why do we have to experience trials? I thought Christianity was supposed to give us our best life now. That's what all the popular preachers say. And before his readers can express the question, he gives them the answer. The trials, these trials have come to show forth to the watching world the genuineness of your faith. A faith that has been tried in the fires of affliction and has come out pure and real and genuine. Hallelujah. Simon Kistemacher wrote this, Christians must understand that God wants to separate true faith from pretense and uses the instrument of suffering to accomplish his purpose. We must be fully aware, beloved, of God's purpose in sending trials and not be surprised. That's the first response. Don't be surprised. And and hear what James says. Hear hear the glorious words of James, chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast. I want to start singing it. This is one of Ty's singing verses. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. Glory comes later. He will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Do you see how James has equated two thoughts here? Those who love God, that group is equated with those who stand the test. Did you catch that? For when he has stood the test, that's that's a group, people who stand the test, people who receive the tests of hardships and fiery trials and they make it. They stand the test. He received the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Another group of people, people who love God. But guess what? They're the same group. People who love God are people who stand the Oh, does that mean? Okay, y'all with me? Are y'all still with me? Okay. Is that, the, is that the alarm saying, okay, end at point one? Okay. No, it's still early. It's still early. We can't end yet. Okay. <laughs> okay. There you go. Uh, wake up, call, right? You're, you're back. Okay. So, people who love God are people who stand the test. So, first response. First proper response to fiery trials. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. As, as it's strange. As, 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 as it's something strange. Okay, second. Verse 13. Rejoice that you share the sufferings of Christ. Second response is to Rejoice. Rejoice, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you also may be glad, rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Okay, so not only must we be not surprised, but we should rejoice. So there's something in the first two points here, we've got something that we don't do, okay, do not be surprised. And then we've got something that we, that we do. Do rejoice. Don't be surprised. 
do rejoice. Not, listen, for the suffering, okay, but in it, in it, big difference, okay? Praise God that we bear his name. What a privilege and honor it is to share in Jesus' sufferings, in a sense, to suffer because we are living for him. Now, here's the big question. Do American Christians think this way? Do American Christians, by and large, think this way? Okay, I'm suffering, and it's connected to my Christianity. Man, what an honor. What an honor that the enemy would perk up his head because I'm committed to Jesus and send me trials. Or probably better thing to say that God would send trials to test me just to be sure, just to show me that my faith is real and genuine. Kistemacher said, Christ identifies with his people when they are suffering for his cause. Let me say that again. Christ identifies with his people when they are suffering for his cause. Again, this is, again, it's almost embarrassing to talk about this because this is so foreign in America. Okay. We're not there yet. And God may, he may, he may protect us. He, he may keep it from us. Who knows? Again, we want to be ready, right? We want to be ready, church. Okay, Christ identifies with his people when they are suffering for his cause. Now, why can, why can uh, Dr. Kistemacher say that? Why can he say that? Well, I think, I think he can say that because of the words that Jesus spoke on the Damascus Road when he saved Paul. Remember? Remember that story? Remember what was going on there? Saul, you know, pre-Paul, Saul was persecuting Christians, dragging them to prison, having them killed. He was, in other words, he was an instrument of bringing trials and hardships into the lives of believers. But what did Jesus say to Saul when he struck him blind and knocked him off his pony? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not why are you persecuting those poor believers. Why are you persecuting me? The king of kings directly identifies uh, with us when we are receiving persecution because of our connection with him. Why are you persecuting me? When Christians are persecuted for being Christians, okay, not because we're jerks. That's a whole different story. When we're persecuted for being Christians, Jesus is receiving that persecution. Why? Because we are in union with him. We're in union with him. Read Romans 6. We are in union with him. So rejoice in that. Rejoice in that. The Prince of Preachers provides a great illustration. Charles Spurgeon said, Can a Christian greatly rejoice when he is in distress? Yes, most assuredly he can. 
Mariners tell us that there are some parts of the sea where there is a strong current upon the surface going one way, but that down in the depths there's a strong current running the other way. So you've got currents going in opposite directions. The sea is deep enough for that to happen. Two seas do not meet and interfere with one another, but one stream of water on the surface is running in one direction and another below in an opposite direction. Now, the Christian is like that. On the surface, there is a stream of heaviness rolling with dark waves, but down at the, in the depths, at the bottom of who we are, there is a strong undercurrent of great rejoicing that is always flowing there. Grasp that, beloved. Ponder that. And ask yourself the question, what is at the bottom of my life? What is my foundation? I think of the apostles in Acts chapter 5, verses 40 and 41. And when they had called in the apostles for preaching Jesus after they had been told not to, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And then they left the presence of the council, listen, rejoicing, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer honor for the name or to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus which wound up being an honor. They were rejoicing. So are are we there? Are we there yet? Well, we we won't know until it comes, but we want to be ready. Is, Is this the way we will think? Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Is that the way we will think when the godless mob comes for us. Heavy duty things to think about, beloved. All right. I got maybe stop here in my notes. Okay. I think we can. Okay. Let's, let's try to wrap it up. Okay. Because the next three are pretty quick, pretty, pretty straightforward. End of verse 13. Third response. Stay focused on God's end game. These are the memory verses we've been doing for the last two months in Colossians 3. Eyes above, set mind on on things above, not on things of the earth. Same thing here. Stay focused on God's end game. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. When will that happen? Last day. End times. Stay focused on that. Stay focused on that. Paul wrote of this focus in Colossians chapter 3 that we've been memorizing. If then you've been raised with Christ, if you're a Christian, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him In glory. Glory comes later. Glory comes then. Keep your eyes on the end game. 
Keep your eyes on God's end game. Number four, verse 14. If you insult it for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Fourth response to fiery trials. Receive the trial as a blessing. Receive the trial as a blessing. This is what Jesus taught his disciples. And Peter, who was one of his original disciples, i.e. big A apostles, is reminding us, is reminding us of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount, beginning at verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Jesus' words that Peter is reminding us of. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And number five, verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So how can we rightly respond to trials? So far, we've seen that we shouldn't be surprised. Don't be surprised. We should rejoice that we're sharing, in a sense, in the sufferings of Jesus. When our suffering is connected to our being a Christian. Third, stay focused on God's end game. Fourth, receive the trial as a blessing. That's exactly what Jesus said, and Peter is just repeating it. And then here, fifth, know that God's with you. Know that God is with you. The spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And Peter says this in a very unique way. He doesn't just say God is with you. I mean, we know that's true all the time, right? All the time, even when we're not receiving persecution. God is with us. He's promised. I I will never leave you nor forsake you. He's with you. He's with you right now. If you're a Christian, he's with you. And you're not suffering persecution. At least I hope you're not suffering. Okay. But he's with you. He's with you. But Peter says it in a very unique way, which seems to indicate to me that He's, he's with us in a, in, a, in, a, in a really unique way that really belies explanation. I, I struggle with this point this week. Peter says, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, again, God is always with us. He's always with us, constantly. But in suffering, when we're suffering... For the name of Jesus, he is with us in a very specific way. And I think the key word is the word, the Greek word that's translated here in the ESV, rests. Rests on you. The Greek word means to give relief, to give refreshment, to give intermission or a break from toil. John MacArthur said it like this. You don't need to look on your sermon sheet because this was a Saturday tweet quote. Okay, Refreshment comes on those believers who suffer for the sake of the Savior and the gospel. The Spirit gives them grace by imparting endurance, understanding, and the fruit that comes with the panoply of His goodness. Panoply meaning abundance. Abundance of His goodness. 
I dug up two scriptural examples of this that I'll, that I'll mention real quick. Remember Numbers 14? What, is, what has just happened? I'll refresh your memory. The spies have been sent in. Ten come back saying, no, no, we got to retreat. Can't go. We're like grasshoppers. It's terrible. It's terrible. And then you got two, uh, Caleb, and, and, uh, Caleb and Joshua saying, yeah, man, we can take it. God can do this for us. God can do this for us. And they get all riled up against uh, uh, Joshua and Caleb. And, and in, in Numbers 14, it says, and they, they, they wanted to stone him. You can read it. I'm not going to read there for the sake of time, but they wanted to stone Joshua and Caleb. And then the very next verse says, and the glory of God appeared. The glory of God appeared in that moment when they were about to stone Joshua and Caleb. And I think it's connected to this. The spirit of glory was resting on Joshua and Caleb because they were, they were doing right and they were receiving hardship. They were receiving insult. They were receiving persecution. The spirit of glory appeared to, to give them relief from this. The Old Testament passage doesn't say that. I'm, just, I'm speculating the connection here. You take it, you ponder it, and, and you draw your own conclusions. But the point is, at the point of two Christians who were believing the promise of God, being threatened to be stoned, the glory of God appeared. Wow. And then the second obvious one is the story of Stephen. The story of Stephen in Acts chapter 6. Let's go there. I won't, I won't try to paraphrase that one. Let me just read that because it's not as long. But uh, in Acts chapter 6, you, you, you remember this. Um, you got Stephen there giving the, uh, the crowd the, 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 the history of God's people in a nutshell. And uh, beginning at verse 8 of chapter 6, Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, uh, and of the Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and, and others, uh, they disputed with Stephen, but they could not understand, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Stephen was anointed. Stephen was anointed. He was the spirit of glory and of God was resting upon him. And this massive crowd was, was, was gathering against him. And they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God, and they stirred up the people, and they set up false witnesses. This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And look at verse 15. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Why? The spirit of glory and of God was resting upon him. He was receiving a fiery trial. He was receiving hardship. He was about to be stoned. Where Joshua and Caleb didn't get stoned, they avoided their stoning by the sovereign hand of God. Stephen's going to get stoned. And look what he says as he's dying at the end of chapter 7. Verse 54, now when they heard these things, they were enraged. These things were the sermon that Stephen had preached about the history of God's people, basically the history of God and the faithfulness of God. 
and Jesus and God revealing himself in Jesus. And when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. Can you imagine that? They're grinding their teeth at him. Verse 55, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. The spirit of glory and of God was resting upon him in his moment of fiery trial. There it is. Exactly what Peter's saying. Yes, God is always with us. But he's with us in a very unique way. Unexplainable by this preacher. When we, have, have, when we are staying the course. When the trials come. We've taken up our cross. We're following Jesus. And we're staying on the course. When the trials come. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So we'll close with this. In his commentary, David Helm tells the story of Helen Roosevelt. You may have heard of her, a missionary. Helen Roosevelt was a, British, a Christian British medical doctor who served more than 20 years in Zaire, Africa. In 1964, a revolution overwhelmed the country. She and her co-workers were thrown into five and a half months of unbelievable brutality and torture. For a moment, she thought that God had forsaken her. But then she was overwhelmed with a sense of his presence, that unique presence that we're talking about here with Caleb and Joshua and Stephen. She was overwhelmed with a sense of his presence. And she records that it was as if God was saying to her. Here's what she wrote in her memoirs or her diary or whatever. She said, 20 years ago, you asked me for the privilege of being a missionary. This is God speaking to her. The privilege of being identified with me. This is it. What you're experiencing is it. Do you want it? This is what it means. These are not your sufferings. They are mine. All I ask of you is the loan of your body. All I ask of you is the loan of your body. It's what God says to us. All I ask of you is the loan of your body. And... We can make a connection here, I think. I'm fairly confident that this is a big part of what Paul probably had in mind when he wrote the inspired words in Romans 12.1. Remember them when we're studying Romans? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. To present your bodies, all that you are, as a living sacrifice. A sacrifice to me that, <laughs> unbelievably, doesn't die. It might, but for most of you, it's, it's a, it remains living. It's a living sacrifice. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Listen, beloved, listen. Hang with me, okay? Two or three more minutes. Our spiritual worship, our spiritual worship that Paul is talking about here in Romans 12 is not just two hours on Sunday morning. Please understand that and please, please know that. As, as wonderful and as glorious and as edifying and as uh, 
joyful as these gatherings are every Sunday morning, as important and as vital as this corporate time together is, this is just the beginning of our worship. God wants all of us, body and soul, all the time. Why? Because he has purchased all of us. He has purchased our entire being with the blood of his crucified and risen son. We are not our own, dear church family. We are not our own. We've been bought with a price. Jesus died for all believers so that according to 2 Corinthians 5.15, we should no longer live for ourselves, but for him in every aspect of life. Every aspect. In our homes and with our families, we are his blood-bought purchase. In our places of work, with our co-workers, we are his blood-bought purchase. On the athletic field, in the gym, on the dance floor, wherever we are, we are God's blood-bought purchase. So, what's the bottom line? Listen, here it is. True Christianity is a whole life deal. It's a whole life deal. It's not a Sunday morning deal. It's not a Wednesday night deal. Our Christian life is not one compartment of our life, along with other compartments of work, social activities, friends, sports, etc. It is our life. Remember Colossians 3, 4? When, next month's memory verse, we're going to get all four of those verses, and then the next month we're going to do all four of them together. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Keith Green, bless his heart, sang it rather bluntly. To obey is better than sacrifice. I want more than Sundays and Wednesday nights. For if you can't come to me every day, then don't bother coming at all. Have you come to Jesus? Dear friend, have you come to Jesus? Have you bowed the knee to him? Have you confessed him as Lord? Do you believe that God raised him from the dead? Have you presented your body as a living sacrifice to God? Ready, ready by God's grace and by his strength. To share in the sufferings of Christ, not being surprised by them, but rejoicing in them, knowing that God will never leave you nor forsake you. If not, dear friend, today is the day. Today is the day of salvation. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your teaching. Thank you for preparing us. Thank you for for not pulling the wool over our eyes. Thank you for being totally upfront with us about what Christianity really is. Thank you for the words of your son, the words of your inspired apostles that continually point to the theology of the cross, that glory comes later. For now, it's the cross. Help us be ready, Father. Help us be ready for any and all persecution that may come to your people in the days ahead. Please, God, do that. Strengthen us for that task. May may the tested genuineness of our faith be evident to everyone in our sphere of life. For our good and your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.